This is the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast with Clinton Sanko, Baker Donaldson's e-discovery officer. In season one of Sitting with the C-Suite, Clinton and guests will explore the e-discovery industry's past, present, and future, largely through the eyes of the executives responsible for the technology and services underlying virtually every e-discovery project. Hello, I'm Clinton Sanko, and welcome to the Lean Discovery series, Sitting with the C-Suite, where we are committed to unraveling e-discovery, one interview at a time. Today, Joan Davison, the CEO of Higher Council and Mestel and Company, joins the show. Joan has two decades of experience and focuses on effective human capital strategies. Join me as I welcome Joan to the show. Thank you, Clinton. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about Higher Council and Mestel and Company, both both the services that you provide, the scope of services, things like that. Sure. So. Higher Council and Mistel and Company are two brands that sit under HCMC Legal, and Higher Council really is um, outsourced legal solutions. So think of it as managed review, contract, and temporary legal staffing projects. Uh, everything associated with project-oriented work within the legal community. Mistel and Company does comprehensive talent management solutions. So executive level recruiting, permanent placement, uh, M&A uh, type of activity in the legal community. So both brands together really focusing on human capital. We've been in the space for over 30 years uh, and really um, look at our model from both uh, all the way from East Coast to West Coast and um, really service a, a very high value, um, uh, value add proposition uh, for the human capital uh, area. So, Jen, let me let me start with just a general human interest question. These are very uh, challenging times that we are living through. I know you're based in Chicago. How are you dealing, kind of just getting through these times with the COVID pandemic and and all the challenges that that presents, both personally and professionally? Yeah. Wow. What a question, right? Um, I certainly know that none of us expected to be on this journey or on this road right now. Um, so, personally, we're doing well. Uh, family's been blessed that we haven't had direct uh, impact of COVID, um, and uh, that's, uh, that's really been terrific for us, uh, but we certainly know friends and others who have been. And certainly from a work perspective, it has really um, forced us, I think, to really um, stay very core to our values. It's really easy to become, I think, lost in the conversation, the emotion of it. Uh, all of the different stats and information coming uh, into us. Um, but as uh, a part of the leadership team here, we've really had to kind of take a step back and, and look at the information, manage with facts, uh, and really um, have a communication with our entire uh, work stream that is communicating often and frequently and sharing information and being absolutely as transparent as we can be. Um, but facts, transparency, sharing our process with them has really uh, helped us kind of navigate these uh, unusual waters. And let's begin with just a little bit about you and, and your professional background to contextualize you a little bit as a, as a business leader uh, in this space. From 2000 to 2015, you were in a leadership position at staff management, which did business as Seton Corp. I noted that in 2011, after serving as Chief Operating Officer, you were named the President as well as the Chief Operating Officer uh, of that company. Just to give a little sense of scale so that everybody kind of has this in front of them, in 2014, under your leadership, Seton Corp sold to True Blue for about $310 million in cash. And I thought it was interesting that after that, True Blue became the largest industrial staffing firm in the United States as a result of that transaction. And it, you know, it was just fascinating to me to see the statistics on Seton. You guys screened 4.3 million candidates in 2013, recruiting more than 250,000 employees. So it's a, a pretty big, big operation at Seton. You also were noted as having led staff management through a recession in 2008. And I, I read about your strategy there, and it looked like it had a couple of different components. One was absolute client loyalty to stick by your clients during that economic downturn, as well as uh, really retention of your key uh, staff resources within the company. And then you came out on the other side of that, that very strong. Given that experience leading one staffing company through a recession and the 
COVID crisis and the economic uncertainties that that's created, what did you learn there that's applicable to this time that we're living in, in terms of leading a company through a time like this? Well, there are a lot of similarities, and certainly the success uh, at Seton wasn't just mine. We had a great team and, and really a terrific organization, and I think you start with that. Um, so certainly at Higher Council and Mistellan Company, we have just a really exceptional leadership team that is really driven by the principles of mutuality, and it's very important uh, for us that we look at this from uh, how can we be mutual to uh, not just our stakeholders, our employees, and our clients, and how do we manage that balance. And I also think it's very important that what I learned back in 20, um, uh, 2008, and certainly now, is that managing the moment um, can get you off track. So as we manage the information that's coming into the organization about uh, court systems opening, offices closing, some of the um, social unrest that's taking place in, in the communities that we serve, we also have to keep a broader picture on the long-term vision of our organization. Um, as the CEO, there's only three things I have to do every day, and if I do them, it, it all kind of comes together, and that's um, focus on our culture, uh, share our vision, and really make sure I have the right talent and the right seats. If those are three things that I can do, um, that really kind of brings the rest of the organization in. So we've been focused on managing the day, but really have our vision and our um, mindset on how we're going to come out of this and what the industry uh, looks like um, over the next three to five years. You were named as president and chief executive officer of both Higher Council and Mastellan Company in March of 2017. After having so much experience leading prior companies through uh, different uh, different aspects of, of staffing, what what was it uh, particularly about Mestel and Higher Counsel that attracted you to the legal vertical and this opportunity? As you said, these were big companies that have been around a long time, over 30 years. Mestel was established in 1993, and excuse me, Higher Counsel was established in 1993, and Mestel and Company was established in 1987. So you were walking into these well-established companies in the legal vertical. What, what, what got you there? Yeah. Well, I think um, certainly that they were well established and the brand has a terrific reputation. Uh, and within the context of that, um, although legal uh, is a old uh, industry in itself, there was a ton of innovation that's coming along. And based upon our brands and where we sat nationally, I really looked at this as an opportunity to take some of my backdrop uh, and, and bring it to an organization that was continuing to grow, that continued to have a vision, and saw it in an industry that was going to continue to evolve, whether that be through technology evolution, whether it be through a higher utilization of human capital strategies, and just looked at it and said, boy, this is something that we can bring together um, in a very... Um, uh, qualitative um, position to go to market, and that's what we're really focused on. Was there anything when you started in 2017 that really surprised you and that was unique about the legal industry specifically? Um, that's a great question. Uh, there was. Um, so uh, what I think was the most surprising um, part when I walked in in 2017 was, I guess, for lack of a better word, the, the lack in some areas uh, throughout the country of the acceptance of outsourced uh, solutions or outsourced labor solutions more specifically. Um, it seemed to me um, from my past experiences that other industries, whether that be accounting or IT or light industrial, were more accepting of the participants um, in the human capital arena in those areas. And let me give you an example, uh, Clinton. Um, I'll never recall, I, you know, we'll never forget it. I recall walking into uh, one of our environments, uh, one of our offices in, a, in um, the city, and uh, happened to have uh, a representative uh, from, a, from a law firm there. And uh, we were kibitzing, walking into the room together, and as the individual walked in, uh, literally said, the real attorney has now entered the room. And you have about 20 contractors uh, in this room, and you hear this just kind of, it wasn't a loud statement, but kind of in passing with me as he was walking in. And I thought, 
Wow, uh, that's uh, that's not something I've heard for a very long time uh, in the context of human capital. And uh, some people could say, hey, that was a one-off, that doesn't represent the industry, and nor do I think it, it does represent the full industry. But at least back in 2017, it wasn't my first encounter with that um, kind of consideration of, hey, maybe this manager review group that's doing this isn't necessarily um, uh, upon the same uh, level or the same um, uh, influence into the process. So that was really surprising for me. Um, that is something that we as an organization continue to talk about, uh, continue to really value our human capital strategy. These are our employees. Um, they have law degrees. Uh, we value what they do. We know that they have an ROI back to our clients. Uh, and that's something that we have to continue to um, be very mindful of, because I think when you're a contractor sitting there, it could be very, um, uh, you could feel very much on the outside of the process. And for us to um, really serve our clients and to serve the industry, we need them to feel part of the process. Um, I know it sounds soft. It's absolute ROI associated with it. You can track it to how many documents can be reviewed and attendance rates and all those things that go together to making a very successful outcome. Um, but that was one of the things that really shocked, um, I shouldn't say shocked, but surprised me that it was still more prevalent in the law community. Focusing on higher counsel and your human capital strategy, that is your strategy. You at higher counsel are a technology agnostic shop, uh, which means that you, you're not offering any of the, the hosting or processing or technical services around the review. You really are a uh, service that, that's brought in at the time that the review needs to be conducted and decisions need to be made. Of course, at that point in the process, there are a lot of options for clients. You can go with everything from the, the actual trial team to other associates at the law firm to staffing uh, companies to LPOs that are end-to-end -end, so that are offering both staffing services as well as technology services and even as far as offshore review services that are offered. Tell me how, given the number of different options that are available to clients, how higher counsel stands out in terms of its uh, ability to create that, that client experience, that ROI that you're talking about from the other options that are available for in-house counsel? Yeah, you're, you've hit the nail on that one. There's certainly a lot of options out there to people and a lot of good options, right? Um, certainly some, uh, uh, some of our competitors or, or some of the products that are out there absolutely serve a, a part of this industry and they do it quite well. Where we differentiate ourselves is, um, I can tell you, hey, we've got a, a database of fantastic people and we're gonna manage how many uh, uh, documents they process and we're gonna have the quality metrics and we're gonna look at attendance rates and we're gonna be on budget. And you know what, we do all that, we really do it well um, and so do a lot of other people. So for us, those are kind of the givens in terms of what the expectation should be. Um, and where we differentiate ourselves in the fact that we are agnostic and that we have this nimbleness and this flexibility to sit in the room, to listen to what's taking place, and to be more of the objective um, group at the table that can ask some questions in terms of, hey, is this really the right workflow? Does this really make sense? We're not necessarily attached to it. So our advantage really comes in our ability to ask those questions, participate with those uh, answers, and, and really not be so steadfast or locked into a preset solution. Um, let me give you a case in point. Um, we had a client who had a very quick ramp up uh, that needed um, to, to actually engage in uh, a, a managed a review process that had just a, it was, it was moving. It was the first time that they were engaging in a third party uh, to help them in the process. So we were all around the table and um, you know, our colleagues uh, from the, the firm, the general counsel, our, our technology partners, and what we were able to do is, is really look at this and say, gosh, we have a lot of best in class examples, not just from one uh, installation of technology, but we're able to bring what we've seen through a lot of years now using different systems, different technologies, different AI, and bring it all together. And for us, that's where that nimbleness and flexibility 
and creating process flow that we can change and adapt to, that's our differentiator. Um, you know, everything else is, we all do it uh, uh, to some degree uh, in terms of KPIs and benchmarking, but that is where we really distinguish ourselves. We can turn it on the dime. And for those companies who wanna listen to that and take that feedback, they can really go uh, very far with it. When you look at the legal industry in general, the legal process outsourcing that has happened over the last over a decade has really changed the view of law firms and clients as to what is possible with staffing. And I've heard you use the term several times, a human capital strategy as a, as a, as a kind of a key term. But what, what do you see in terms of what's possible with a, a human capital strategy looking forward for corporate clients and law firms, what, what opportunities are out there to leverage human capital strategies to their, to their greatest extent on a go forward basis? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, outsourcing has been around for a long time. I think as the legal community continues to embrace it, I happen to be with um, uh, 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 an insurance executive in the last uh, probably six months or so who literally walked out of a boardroom and said, gosh, one of our challenges is that uh, the board now wants legal to be more of a profit center. You know, we've been spending all this money and uh, they're really coming back and, and pushing us very hard and I've got to kind of get ahead of it. And I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, help, help me kind of, uh, what do you think, right? Kind of high level. And when you look at that and you look at those opportunities um, for where GCs uh, can really benefit, we all know that taking process that is more standardized or more rope uh, can certainly be outsourced with a degree of consistency um, and, and done very effectively. So from a GC perspective, take an example of contracts management, right? You can really look at that area and work with an outsourcing organization um, to really become more proficient at it. Now, some people would say, well, okay, that's one avenue. We're gonna get a small ROI in that proficiency and okay, that's great. But when you really look at that, what the, what from my perspective, right? From our perspective that we see as a company, really those effective um, uh, general counsels look at that process, take the ROI, but it's the next question that makes the difference. And the next question is how do we leverage that into other areas? What are the best practices that we're seeing and that you're seeing as a supplier that you can bring back to us? So, you know, some of these are the low hanging fruit that we all can adjust to, um, but it's how do we elevate that low hanging fruit and bring it back into the organization and rethread it, right? So maybe it's not just how do we get standardized contracts, but it's, hey, in the future, these are the top three things that we're seeing other people do within that, I don't know, real estate leasing area or, or what have you, whatever they're looking at. So it's really um, being creative and asking the questions and making sure you have a provider that's going to be providing not just the set of job that you're looking for, that's the bare minimum, but it's creating that innovation within the legal community to bring back, to ask questions, to how you're gonna use that within your business model. That, that's where we see there's some really effective um, groups out there doing that around the country. When we were talking about your job as the CEO, uh, you noticed that you noted that there were three things that that you do. One of which was culture, the other which of which was putting talents in the seats, and the third of which was vision. And, and that really resonated with me as I look at higher counsel, noting that you're entirely employee owned, and that the contract review employees are offered ongoing education, tuition support, and boot camp training. And looking at the marketplace, reviewers have more options than ever before in terms of their mobility and their ability to, 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 to move from employer to employer. How do you remain competitive, both in the recruiting of, of the right talent, getting the right talents into the seats, as well as the retention and creating that culture that ensures that you're able to retain those really high-performing reviewers that you want to keep at Higher Council? Yeah, it's certainly a competitive market, and uh, recruiting and retention is an everyday strategy. It's an everyday dialogue. So fortunately for us, we've kind of built our organization about around connectivity and engagement. So if you look at just kind of the era that we're in with COVID right now, I can tell you that every single member of our uh, community that was working for us had 
personalized phone calls, personalized engagement with our um, management team, with the recruiters, with HR. We set up uh, a survey that had over 700 participants uh, talking about what do they need? How does a re-entry to work look like? What are some of the struggles that they have? We've uh, pushed out uh, paid for CLE courses to all, all of our contractors that are with us. Uh, we have ACIDS training. Uh, HR has done a phenomenal job in our organization of setting up uh, every single week through COVID an open forum where we encourage contractors to come. We encourage all of our employees to come. No preset agenda, just dialogue. What are you experiencing? Are you adjusting? Shared learnings. What are we not doing that we need to do? Um, and then um, they've, they have these engagement uh, things, not just for uh, our workforce, but also for their families. So uh, they go into these competitions, they send them out every two weeks and uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, how do you stack five items together? And, and uh, you, you should see that the, the contractors have a lot of their kids participate and then we put them up on videos and it's this feeling of community, right? We're all in this together. It's not an us versus them. It's not a management versus contractor. It, this is this is our this is our staff. This is our team, um, and it's really important to us that they feel engaged. Uh, I'm not saying we get it right every single day, but we certainly look at trying to um, make sure that that contractor base understands we value them, we appreciate them. Uh, and just like everybody else, we're in this together, trying to trying to get everybody to the next step. This leads naturally into one of the questions that I really wanted to hear from you on, and that is, review has historically been location based. There's review centers, right? Review rooms, and the the key in the past was let's get everybody in the room together. They can collaborate. They can commiserate. They're much more easy to communicate. They access to the team leaders, access to the to the law firm uh, escalation, and that all happened based on location. So you move everybody remote when the COVID crisis happens. How do you uh, mimic that environment in the context of the specific reviews? How do you keep that communication up such that they can feel like the camaraderie that they felt like when they were in the same room and that the communication channels remain open? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So um, fortunately for us, we always offered a remote uh, review option, right? Uh, certainly not, it wasn't utilized uh, to the degree that it is today where, where most of it is all remote. So we had some of those um, uh, anchors already in play uh, and it is about Zoom calls or whatever your medium is and it's about that engagement. It's sending out communication on uh, public forums and it's also engaging our client. We have some really terrific clients where we may say, hey, on Friday, we're hosting an open, um, an open hour with the reviewers for those who wanna join in so we can have that dialogue. And they're dialing into Zoom calls and they're wearing baseball caps and talking about their favorite team and uh, you know, are they gonna play or they're not gonna play? I I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, so I'm just grateful we're back on the field. So, um, you know, it is really that level of engagement and it's reaching out. So I know from our perspective, when we're speaking with our clients, I know that everybody is, is kind of, hey, it's work at home, isn't this great? Well. You know, I'm here to offer you a little bit of a different standpoint of view. You know, we have a lot of contractors out there who are absolutely doing fantastic jobs and and keeping up their numbers and, and all of that, but they have real challenges of working at home, right? Um, just as we all do, uh, whether it's the dog or the kids or they don't have the work, uh, at, you know, a, a designated area. So we've spent a lot of time working with them and trying to problem solve, how can we do that? How you know, can we shift your hours? What, what does it look like to get us in an environment that is more conducive to that? So when we did our survey, uh, I say we collectively, HR really did our survey, but we had over uh, 700 participants uh, in it. And what we really heard um, from our workforce was, hey, we wanna be communicated to. We want uh, as much transparency. What is working uh, at home look like? What is coming back to the office? And I would say we probably, 65, 35, 70, 30, believe that at some point in time, about 70% of our clients at least are initially telling us, hey, we're gonna come back to the work environment, right? This is good, this is working right now, 
but we still want to be back on site at some point in time. So we've had to do a lot of dialogue with our workforce about what that means. And uh, for us, I mean, we're putting in ultraviolet lighting and, and, you know, partitions and wearing masks and all of those things. And all of that's important. I'm sure a lot of organizations are doing that as well. But really for us, it, it's about communicating that to our workforce, asking them what they feel comfortable with, what would it take, what do they need to be successful, and then it just centers all around that level of engagement, right? Constant communication of letting them know that they have a voice in this process um, and we're gathering that information and taking it forward. So Zoom calls and, and um, you know, uh, emails and phone calls and, and getting team leads on the phone and getting project managers on the phone to actually take a step back sometime and not just talk about the, the the project. I think that's easy to do within the context of Zoom or any other uh, remote uh, operation. But what the harder part is, it's making sure that they're vested and they feel connected. And those are the human connections that we are working very hard to try to deploy on um, technology platforms. You know, whether the remote work environment is here to stay or whether it's a temporary thing, there certainly are elements of it where everybody's exercising a lot more muscles in terms of working remotely and it's opening up possibilities with regard to staffing that maybe weren't foreseeable if you were put yourself back into January of 2020. What do you see as the key opportunities, the upside that this creates in terms of possibilities for staffing and document review that as a result result of the COVID crisis may actually become um, more commonplace uh, given that remote work option? Well, it's definitely access to talent. Uh, that's what we've seen. So we have um, hired people in South Dakota and uh, uh, Alaska, which, you know, very candidly prior to COVID, uh, I wouldn't say our recruitment efforts were very vast in those marketplaces. Uh, so the opportunity to bring in talent that we probably didn't have access to before is is the greatest benefit of the the work at home model, um, and that is going to give um, our clients a, a different uh, a different you know kind of view into how they can construct a project and where we can bring in talent. So if you're in New York City and the the theory always was you need uh, you know contractors only in New York City. Well, you know, Austin, Texas probably has people that can work for you as well. Um, so I think there's that more blended um, uh, talent search uh, that's going to aid the industry um, for those clients who uh, are comfortable with and continue to choose a remote model. In 2017, you were interviewed by Clear Edge Marketing. I don't know if you remember this interview. It's been three years ago now. But you, you must have dug deep here. <laughs> We always do. Uh, so you were you noted referring to your to your many experiences that quote everyone with leadership aspirations should sell, operate, and understand the financials of an organization to best serve the client. End quote. How does that advice specifically apply to your mindset as the CEO of Higher Council and the document review space in terms of capturing and understanding that understanding to best serve the corporate client that's ultimately responsible for the bills and the progress of the case? So uh, I, I do remember a little bit of the quote. I, I still believe uh, wholeheartedly in the uh, understanding of all aspects of your product. Uh, our product happens to be human capital. I'll date myself for um, my Midwest uh, colleagues. So you mentioned I was in Chicago. Uh, back in the day, there was a great businessman in Chicago named Cy Sims. And in every commercial he ran on TV, he would say an educated consumer is our best customer. Uh, and, um, you know, we feel the same way. I feel the same way. The more education I can give to our teams and our clients, about how um, the different levers uh, can be um, understood and then leveraged in a process, the better outcome you will have. So I know some folks like to say, okay, just give me the best rate and you can lower the wage rate and that's where that's where you know that's where the money is going to be and, and let's do that. Well, it, it's one component, right of what a um, what what composes a managed review process, but there are other levers of it, right? Perhaps we can look at the, um, the, uh, the, the, the jurisdiction types of things. Perhaps we can look at the process. 
perhaps we can look at the taxes of where you're going to place that review and how that uh, offers a different understanding. We can look at the, the access to different technology. Can we bring in AI to sit on top of it? And does that streamline the document flow? When you know all of those different components and what their cost structure is, that gives you a big picture. It doesn't make this about pay rate or markup or, or what, you know, a price on the document, how many do you process? It broadens the conversation and it brings everybody to the table to make it much more mutual, right? You may be able to pull a lever that is, is very different and people didn't look at before, but it could absolutely enhance the overall ROI on the project. So by knowing those types of things and really understanding the components, and I say this to our sales team, I say it to our recruiters all the time, you really have to go deep. So we share our financials as a company. Um, we share them uh, on every single project that we do. Uh, we share them internally with our team. Uh, we're fairly transparent with our clients because we want people to understand um, how all of it comes together. You know, the cake at the end is beautiful, but if you're going to pay more for flour today and you can, you can pay less uh, and you can offset it with something else, that's what we want people to be able to get to. And there's a lot of components that go into a managed review or even into a, a perm placement or into any type of placement. So um, knowing how that comes together is important. We uh, are really transparent with our organization uh, and our project managers so they understand it. And when they see it, we can have more dialogue with the client. Not everyone's receptive to it uh, um, sometimes, but it certainly is our goal is to, to educate everybody into what those nuggets are um, so we can all move forward collectively. Joan, over the last 10 or 15 years, the amount and the variability of data that we see in e-discovery projects has just grown exponentially. Over the past three years, it's been a, a crazy amount of growth. And of course, the e-discovery tools have matured. They've developed to kind of keep up with that pace of growth on the volume and variability side. You've even, you've even mentioned in several of your answers the application of AI workflows as a way of attacking certain uh, projects based upon the the needs and the particulars of that of that project. If you were talking to in-house counsel and were asked to help them have a have a rubric or a way of looking at where to draw the line between what's possible with the technology and when you have to bring in the human capital, because you always have to bring in the human capital because that's what drives even the machine learning. By definition of the words machine learning, it's learning from the humans. How would you advise them to think about that line as they're looking at their projects and portfolios in terms of knowing where to draw it? I think that's a question that we all kind of um, ask on each and every project, right? Because there is such a fine line sometimes and machine learning has an absolute application. It has enhanced uh, manager review services. It has enhanced the quality of satisfaction of the contractor. I know that people think that's contrary that, oh, they're taking documents away from you. But my goodness, do you really want to sit there with a law degree and X out, uh, you know, logos, right? People want to do qualitative work. So AI has absolutely enhanced the, um, the, the, the contractor experience because they're working on, uh, you know, more substantive matters. So from our perspective, I think you have to take AI absolutely all the way that you possibly can. You know, you have to utilize it. It does bring out data that shouldn't have to be reviewed. And I think the pivot point there is when does human capital come in is, is kind of a dance, right? And it depends upon per project, but human capital should be part of the process, part of setting up how the review is going to be looking. You need project managers who are experienced uh, with the AI tools and, the, and, and utilization of them. You need to be checking them at all times. You need to be doing quality assurance on the tool and the work the tool is doing, as well as on the human capital side of it. And when you start to see um, that the tool has been utilized to the best effort that it can be, that's when human capital engages. We like a little bit more of an overlap from our perspective. So we do gut check uh, some of the tool parameters and some of the results. And that's how we know uh, when we're engaged in the process. But we encourage every general counsel to look at AI as part of the solution, 
Um, and then, um, cause it weeds out a lot of things that the reviewers don't like to do anyways. And it really kind of enhances uh, the review process. So it's a delicate balance. And we would tell you that every project is different because all the search terms and all the work uh, flows are different. Um, but you have to have, um, you have to have that balance. We were speaking early in the conversation, Joan, you mentioned that a great leadership team has mutuality. And I noticed that that was already baked into one of my questions for you, because in a note called Insights Success, which is up on, I think it's Higher Council's website, you were quoted as often saying the following point, quote, as a leader, understanding that it is not about you, but about the mutual alignment of all parties is the only path to true success. And you said identifying mutuality is key, end of quote. The, the concept of mutuality just really resonates when you're looking at a document review project. You have, you have the review team that's on, uh, that's on uh, you know, virtually now at, at higher counsel. You have outside counsel. You have the client. If you want to extend that mutuality, you have the court and even opposing counsel as needing to be aligned throughout this process. Looking specifically at aligning the mutuality of interest on more of the things that you can control, i.e. the review team with the outside counsel and the inside counsel, what's, what's your secret? What have you guys found that works well uh, to, to achieve that equilibrium and that mutuality that you're talking about in your quote? Yeah, so for us in a managed review environment or in a contracts environment or in a direct hire environment, for, for that fact, uh, on the Mistel side, what's really important to us is that we sit down uh, collectively at the beginning of an engagement, whatever that engagement is. And for us, we like to utilize the word swim lane management, swim lane management all the time. My team hears it. We have lots of swim lanes uh, for various projects in the company. But it really is the clarity of, hey, what is the end goal? We're literally going to write it on the sheet of paper. And then we're going to put all of the influencers and stakeholders into a swim lane. And then we model out what role they play and what decisions they will, will, um, they will make. So for us, how you set up that project and who's responsible for what, seeing it on a single sheet of paper where you can look down and say law firm here, uh, general counsel here, technology provider here, and how all of that blends together, it eliminates all of the confusion. It eliminates, um, for lack of a better word, the, the uh, sometimes egos that play in, oh, I can do this this week. No, no, no. If we stay in the swim lane and we all agree upon what that swim lane looks like, it is gonna enhance the flow of the process. You're gonna get through things quicker. We distribute that. I'll give you a case in point. We have a client on the East Coast. Um, it's more of a, a direct hire model, but they needed to hire 12 associates in literally like two and a half weeks. I mean, it was really condensed. It was a short period of time and it was in various locations. Well, we went through this uh, swim lane management. We reverted it back out. Two hours later, they made their revisions to it. It was clear, it was concise. And we literally were able to execute that on time, under cost, with minimal disruption, right? I mean, that's a lot to bring on that many people in a direct hire uh, for a, a law firm in a short period of time. So the swim lane management, it's critical. If, if you're not using it, if there's one thing I can say today, we encourage all of, um, all of our clients to do it. Uh, you know, where we can influence it, we're all about it. Um, I, I know not everybody likes it, but uh, it usually doesn't take that long. It's really easy to do, and it brings great, great clarity. And um, if I were uh, speaking to the group about mutuality, that is part of what mutuality is. Um, we all know our roles. Jen, you mentioned just going out and recruiting 12 associates for a law firm environment. And, you know, the same happens at the beginning of a review. You have to go out and recruit the right reviewers that are a good fit for that project. How has your recruiting experience in the legal space differed from your previous experience in the more generalized recruiting? What, what are the, the different challenges that are faced with legal recruitment versus what regular employment recruiting may, uh, may entail? I don't think they're vastly different, right? I think when you're looking at a, uh, a person who's looking for an opportunity to be employed, everybody kind of wants the same um, kind of nuggets, right? You want to be treated like a professional. You want to be um, spoken to with clarity about the role of, of what's going to take place. 
I think the only differences in the nuances is where you're looking to find those great candidates, right? So within the legal community, we spend a great deal of time at various law schools uh, where, um, you know, whether we're speaking on behalf of the company and whether we, we have positions or we're doing it from an educational standpoint of what managed review and what the opportunity of the market looks like. So we definitely see ourselves there a lot more uh, than you probably do generalized staffing. We are uh, looking at working with, um, you know, all the, the technology tools that are out there. And we attend a lot of um, uh, conferences where we're putting on uh, and demonstrating uh, educational environments. Uh, we have education partners, whether it be ACIDS or Loman or others that we work with that are also touching this community and uh, providing coursework. We're looking at how do we get engaged with them? How does those uh, venues help us recruit more into the organization? But the fundamentals of what people are looking for um, usually are, are generally the same. Everybody wants to be treated well. They wanna know what they're gonna do. They want fair pay for what they're gonna do. And um, they want a good connectivity and a good company to work for. So those elements are the same. Some of the other elements uh, where we find those and, and how we source are different. If you were sitting down with a general counsel that was responsible for a litigation portfolio or an e-discovery portfolio within a, within a company, and they were to ask you, you know, Joan, how do I measure the effectiveness of my overall staffing strategy within an e-discovery document review portfolio? What are the key ROIs that I should be measuring? What would your what would be your answer as to what they should be? chiefly looking at in terms of measuring that value that's brought? So I think it's a two-part, um, it's like a, if you're dancing, it's what, it's a Texas two-step? Uh, not that I'm from Texas. But the first step of that is just getting the core basic scorecard down. Uh, and that's round one, right? What is the, the cost structure? What is how many documents are being reviewed? What's the quality percentages? What was the budget? Is it on budget? Is it under budget? Right, so it's the um, most generalized scorecard. But for um, repeat general counsel that are gonna have ongoing litigations, it's taking that scorecard that you've baselined on your first two or three or four um, uh, um, projects, and then asking the vendor community, uh, not just us, but the whole vendor community, what have we learned? What should we be applying? And that means to me, to our organization, what have we learned through this process? What can we adjust in the workflow? What can we adjust in the reviewers that are doing it? What project managers have been most successful? What are we hearing and learning to make the next project more cost-effective? But the other area of it is, what have we learned to bring back to the organization to make my organization stronger? So we all seem to think about, you know, the litigation as a case and a matter, and we got to get through it. We got to be on budget. We got to hit these deadlines and hit these ratios and get it to the court on time and make it uh, defendable and all of these and all that's the given. But after one or two, the general counsel really now needs to start to say, what are the similarities and what education do I bring back to my company? You know, where did we fall? What is the consistency that we're seeing that we're either getting caught up on or that we have to overcome. And how do I take that internally and bring it to my training department and, and do something with it as a company, as a corporation, as opposed to in my little arena of just legal. So I, I think if I was speaking to the GC, it is creating that scorecard and that dashboard of your standard KPIs, many of them, which we all share, measuring it, but then making sure that really very quickly after that, it becomes a broader conversation of what can we learn? How do we bring it back and, and take it back into the organization? I think for general counsel to have a, a broader footprint in an organization, I think sharing these learnings and these opportunities with the rest of the company really starts to set the different companies apart. So Jen, we've talked a lot about the, the culture and putting talents in the seats. And the other aspect of leadership that you mentioned as CEO was vision. What is the, what is the vision looking forward for higher counsel specifically in the managed review space that you're, that you're bringing to the organization every day? 
Yeah, so for us, uh, that vision is really about uh, probably about three primary aspects of what we're trying to do, right? We're certainly trying to carry our message forward of how do we provide more value. More value to us is, yes, you have your textbook things, but how else can we look at something? How else can we look at a workflow? How more nimble can we be? Um, you know, uh, now that we're remote and, and how that can be applied, what advantage does that give to our um, corporate client? What is the vision of how that looks? How is security going to continue to be uh, pressed upon? You know, there's really a different security level right now that's taking place, right? Um, you know, some of our clients want us to dispatch equipment and it comes with different security levels to it. Some of our clients feel comfortable having people use their home machines. You know, how do we adjust as an organization uh, and have the vision to anticipate what are the best platforms, what are the pitfalls of each, and how do we kind of shore that up as, as we move forward? The other vision of it is, is how do we continue to take this message where, as you mentioned uh, many moments ago in this conversation, Clinton, and said, gosh, there's a lot of competitors. How do you distinguish? It is how do you really continue to be nimble and flexible and demonstrate that as a value to our client? For us, when we speak about vision, it's having that opportunity to kind of move that forward. And then it's, um, you know, uh, also uh, in the managed review area, it's about being given the platform of how do we bring in other experts to help our end client? We certainly don't know it all, right? So it's the vision of saying, hey, we really think that this other organization can be brought in to help uh, get this redo, re review done quicker or faster, or maybe they have an expertise. So it's really leveraging all of those different areas in terms of how we look at um, changing the dynamic of the conversation. All with that ROI, right? We all have to get better. Each review, we should be learning something that we carry on to the next review and to the next client. I think that's the benefit of where we sit being agnostic is that we get to see many cases uh, and we get to see many different firms, many different providers uh, and how they handle uh, the, the vast array that's out there. And we're not kind of pigeonholed into one view of it. Taking that experience and that knowledge and bringing it back to the legal community. So the next project, whether it's with the same client or not, you have this learning uh, that's taken place of what's best in class. You can bring that and it kind of rises all of our projects at the same time. Those are the things that we, we, we talk about an awful lot in our company. So I have three uh, questions that I ask each, each guest. Uh, the first is, who is a business leader that you particularly admire, and what are the particular qualities that you admire in that leader? Two-part answer for me. Uh, so, uh, Mary with uh, General Motors is obviously, you know, extremely well-known, really successful. If you look at kind of the previous answer I gave to you in terms of knowing all the components, I'm, I'm not sure there's anybody in business that knows the components as well as she does coming up through engineering and the various careers that she had with uh, GM. So certainly that's a role model. I, I really love the philosophy about knowing it and then um, being an innovator in the space and all the work that they're doing with um, electric cars and, and diversity and inclusion. I just think she's fantastic and has really set the way. So I keep a really close eye uh, and um, look at what she's doing. And then second, um, I think everybody who sits in a leadership role needs to be a continual learner. I'm a member of uh, Vistage, uh, which is a CEO network. Um, I, I have a small group of about 15 that we m meet with in Chicago of various business owners of all sizes of, of you know, $100 million companies as small as, you know, $50 million companies. And we meet every month and I learn from that group and that organization continually. It's, it's, it's really, um, our group specifically uh, has been a great influence uh, and just watching people migrate, right? In, in their businesses and what they have to challenge with and, and how they lead. So two-part answer for me, but both are equally important. What's the last podcast you listen to, even if it's a guilty pleasure? <laughs> uh, it's not a guilty pleasure, but I'm a huge fan of Amy Kay Hutchinson. Uh, I'm actually a subscriber to her. Amy Kay is, uh, uh, does a lot of um, great pieces on communication and being an effective communicator and knowing what you want from that 
conversation and knowing what the other person uh, wants. Um, and uh, we've had her host in our company. She's done our national meetings. Uh, she's been uh, across the circuit. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan and, and I'm listening to her right now because I think at this particular point um, in our history, uh, communication is really important. So I wanna make sure that we and I am learning from her to get it right for our workforce and our clients. Um, there's a lot of unrest and, and, and uneasiness uh, in the world. So I think our words mean more now uh, than they did before. So uh, I'm all about Amy Kay. All right, last one. What's the last book you read, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend to the listeners because you just couldn't put it down? Uh, well, now I'm going to sound a little bit repetitive. So uh, it's uh, The Secrets Leaders Keep. Uh, and it is by Amy Kay, and she wrote it uh, a few years ago, and I picked it back up to see what tidbits I can uh, glean. So right now I'm a little bit more focused on the, uh, the business side of it than the guilty pleasure, just given where we're at uh, in the world. Um, so uh, that's, that's what I'm reading right now. All right, Joan, what's one great question that I should have asked you that I just missed? I, I guess Cubs or Sox, because I'm in Chicago and it's always Cubs. So, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it on that. If, if you're a sports fan, you'll, you'll know that's a, that's a deeply rooted uh, controversy in Chicago. Well, Joan, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciated the time. Thanks for joining us on the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast, Season 1, Sitting with the C-Suite. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. You can also visit us online at www.leandiscoveryblog.com, where we have additional content and videos of the interviews. Lean Discovery Applied is hosted by Clinton Sanko, eDiscovery Officer of Baker Donaldson. This program is not intended as an endorsement and does not constitute legal advice. Thanks to Baker Donaldson, a leader in innovative legal services, for supporting this podcast. To the guests and to you, the listener. See you next time.